Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 19. I believe that's page 71 in your pew Bibles. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud, uh, loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended, it, descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priest who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up 
to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, I'm so excited about this text. I know I'm getting a lot of feedback from the book of Exodus, and it's been a blessing to you. It's been a real blessing to me just to prepare and, and to teach, um, learning a lot. And we're getting at the point now where we're, we're about at the law. So you remember um, you've got the Exodus, God delivering the people. The next section is the law, and then the tabernacle. And so we're at the, the law aspect of it. We're out right at Sinai. And uh, it's, it, a lot of people have a lot of confusion about the law and how does it apply to us and um, in, in our lives. And so I'm excited to be able to teach that. We'll start uh, that this week. But think about Exodus 19 and think about marriage. You know, there's a, in marriage, there's a covenant between two people. You know, there's a commitment there. Uh, between two people to love, to be faithful until death, death separates you. Uh, you know, a husband and wife, they kind of plan the day. Well, I would say the wife the, to be plans the day, right? The guy's just kind of there in the way. And um, then you have the day, the wedding ceremony, right, Bo? And you say your vows to one another, right, Bo? You say your vows promising to be, be all that God wants you to be to your wife and she's promising to be all that she should be to you as um, your hus her husband and then you're declared husband and wife and it's a sweet sweet time and then you go on your honeymoon now for some you have a you have a hometown honeymoon and for some people you get to go somewhere that you maybe have never been or whatnot but then there's this consummation of this relationship. You become one flesh, and you begin to live life together as one flesh, as a family, and you live happily ever after, right? But shortly after the honeymoon, or maybe even during the honeymoon, what, what often happens more times than not is there's issues arise. This wedding bliss uh, becomes... Um, somewhat of a, a work in progress. And the sweet bride notices that her knight in shining armor, when he takes off his clothes to get into the shower, those clothes stay where they're left on the floor. And then she notices that when he goes to get milk, well, sometimes he'll just take the jug and he just drinks it right out of the jug and then puts it back in the refrigerator. And then even though he's the last one up, he never makes the bed. And so what happens is she has to introduce what one might call the law to help their relationship flourish. Now, she didn't marry him because she, he would, she knew he would pick up his clothes or that he would make his bed or that he would do everything that she wants him to do. That's not why she married him. No, she married him because she loves him and she put her affection upon him. But now she needs to lay down the law to give him her expectation of how he is to handle himself in this covenant relationship. And so what has happened is God has chosen Abraham and made a covenant with him. Not because of anything that Abraham had done or would do, but he chose him and promised that he would become a great nation. And he also promised him land for this nation, the promised land, and he, he promised him that those that bless you, I'll bless, and those that curse you, I'll curse. I got you back. 
And he promised Abraham that through Abraham and his descendants that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, what were the requirements put on Abraham? He just had to believe. He just had to trust the Lord, that the Lord would come through and do what he said he would do. And the Bible says that Abraham trusted God in, in Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was righteous, declared righteous because of his faith. That's all he did. In this covenant God made with Abraham was called a unilateral covenant. That means it's one-sided. God did all the work. Abraham didn't have to do anything, jump through hoops, nothing. He just trusted God. God did all the work. And that's what's happened for hundreds of years. God's been doing all the work, blessing the nation of Israel. They're becoming this, they're numerous, like stars in the sky. And he's blessing them. And those who bless Israel, he's blessing. And those who curse them, like the Amalekites, he's cursing. Like the Egyptians, he's cursing. But now we're getting close to Exodus chapter 20 where God is going to begin to deliver his law to the nation and he's going to let the nation of Israel know what he expects of them. The terms of the relationship haven't been set. These Israelites, they know God, but they're not, they don't know him like they will once he gives them the law. So as we look at the outline, there's several different ways of looking at this outline. You see they're in Egypt and now they're on the road to Sinai and now they're at Sinai. We're at chapter 19 so they're at the, the base of Mount Sinai and they are um, about to receive the law. What God expects from them. And it's been seven weeks since they left the Red Sea. Since they've crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. About 50 days have gone by and they're traveling. Where are they traveling towards? They're traveling towards the promised land. But on the way, they stop their travels at the, the, the mountain of God, at the foot of the mountain. It's called Horeb and, and also called Sinai. And if you remember from chapter 3, Moses was last here as a shepherd taking care of Jethro, his father-in-law's flock. And God from that place spoke to Moses from the burning bush and told him to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and God told him, you're, you're going to know that I sent you because when you come out of Egypt, you're going to worship me on this mountain. And here they are, the nation of Israel, led by Moses back at this mountain of God. And this is where they're going to spend the next 11 months for the next 11 months, they're going to receive God's law. They're going to be taught by God through the prophet Moses what God expects from them. They're going to hear God's will for their lives. So from Exodus 19, if you're looking at your Bible and chronologically through Numbers chapter 10, the nation of Israel will be camped at the foot of Mount Sinai learning the will of God. And this section here in chapter 19 summarizes this Mosaic Covenant, which is going to be spelled out more formally in greater detail in the chapters ahead. But three things we learn from this text. First is that God redeemed Israel so that they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These first six verses. 
We see Moses, God's prophet and mediator for Israel. He goes up on the mountain to hear from God. And what he's going to do, he's going up on the mountain, he's going to hear from God, and then he goes back down the mountain and delivers God's message to the people. And look at verse 4. Notice God described his rescue of them from Egypt as an eagle caring for its young and bringing them to himself. And he, an, an eagle would push out a little eaglet out of the, out of the nest. The nest is high up on a cliff. He pushes the eaglet out, and the eaglet's flapping his wings and trying to figure it out, and he's steadily descending. What does that eagle do? That mother eagle comes up underneath that eaglet and catches that eaglet on its back, and it takes it back up for the next test flight. And God is describing his care for his people in such a way. That's the way I've cared for you. Think about the calling of Moses and the signs Moses gave, not only to his people, but he and Aaron did before Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the plagues in which the Hebrews were spared, and, and the Passover, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and the annihilation of the Egyptian army in, in the Red Sea, and then the water from a rock. Conan, not once, but twice. And, and there was quail, and there was manna being given. There's a pillar of fire by, by night and a cloud by day as God leads his people out of Egypt towards the promised land. And then we see the defeat of the Amalekites. All this is all the works of God. This is what God is doing for his people. And he, he's doing this to bring them to himself. He wants his, this nation to know him and to be intimate with him. Why is God doing this for his people? He wants them to be intimate with him and to know him. And it's, it's not, he didn't choose them. He's doing all these things because he knew that this nation would be so obedient to him and love him so faithfully. It's not true. Because they didn't do that. It's not because they were this this populous nation that was had a strong army because that's not true either. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 8 tells us this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, out of all the people on the earth, God chose Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because, and it wasn't because they were obedient either. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. And we know that as we continue reading the story of Israel. How faithful were they? Not very. But why did he choose them? But because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's what he said, he told Abraham he's going to do. And Isaac and Jacob that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did he do it? It's because he was impressed with Israel. He knew, he knew beforehand what they were going to do and how obedient they were going to be. No, of course, because they weren't obedient. Why did he do it? Because he loved them. And he had swore to Abraham that's what he was going to do. And that, that promise that God gave to Abraham was unilateral. It was God doing all the work. The only requirement with Abraham was faith. There's no responsibility on the recipient of this Abrahamic covenant. The responsibility is on the one who is doing all the promising, and that's God. Therefore, this blessings of this unconditional covenant are secured by grace. It's a free gift. God is saying, remember what I've done for you. Remember the grace that's been extended to you. And look at verse 5. 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now this is interesting. When he says if, does he mean that Israel is not a treasure possession, is not a kingdom of priests, and at that point in time is not a holy nation? But if the nation will obey, she will become a treasure possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Or is he saying something else? And what's he saying here? That if statement is conditional, right? We think about it for a second. We know that salvation is not based on works. Israel wasn't saved. They weren't rescued because of what they would accomplish or what they would do for the Lord. We know that's not true. If that's the case, none of us would ever be saved, right? But in fact, Israel had already been saved. They'd already been rescued. They already were God's treasured possession. They already were a kingdom of priests. They already were a holy nation. So what is God saying? He's saying through Moses that they should obey the law that he's about to give them so they will become the nation he made them to be. They were already his possession, a nation of priests, a holy nation. They needed to grow into their position. What God had already chosen them to be, they needed to become. Think about salvation and grace. It, it demands a response. This, this nation had been rescued because God loved them. So we see these Abrahamic covenants, it's an unconditional covenant. It's unilateral. God's doing all the work. But here we see this covenant that, that God is about to make through Moses called the Mosaic Covenant. And it, it's what we call a bilateral covenant, simply meaning that there's a responsibility that the nation of Israel will have. But it's not a responsibility where we, 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 we do something to earn something. I'm going I'm to obey so God will do this. I'm going to obey so I can become a treasure possession. No, they're already a treasure possession. These responsibilities, but when we obey and, and we're responsible for what God gives us, those responsibilities turn into blessings. As you obey, you'll be blessed. You will be his treasure possession. You'll be this nation of priests, this holy... You'll experience that to the fullest. Let's think about Israel's ultimate salvation was secure. They've already been rescued. They've already called God's people. He's already promised to bless them and to take care of them. But in order for them to enjoy the fullness of God's blessing, they needed to keep the covenant. They needed to obey. I mean, think about it. Can you enjoy intimacy with God while being in rebellion against Him? I mean, Josh, can you, can you say, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just so close to the Lord. I'm so intimate with Him. I experience His presence and I, I experience His pleasure when you're in just defiance against Him? No. We experience that, that intimacy and the pleasure of the Lord when we're yielded to Him and, and obeying Him. And when we obey, we are blessed. A treasured possession. What does it mean for Israel to be a treasured possession? Well, they were special. They were Think about all that God had done for them. They belonged to Him. They were His kids. They were His people. A kingdom of priests. To think about the promise of to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you'll be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Think about a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They stand between God and man and they help them be reconciled, right? They help bring people closer to God. They help dispense God's truth, his justice, his favor, his discipline, and his holiness to the people. And Israel was called to such a function. Every single Israelite 
were called to serve and to follow the Lord. They were a kingdom of priests. And they're a holy nation. What does it mean to be a holy nation? Well, holy means to be set apart. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. It means to be set apart. They're to be different. They're to be different than all the, the pagan Gentile nations. Isaiah 49, 6, we see it again. Is it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A holy nation set apart. Why? Be distinct so we can give God glory, so we can point people to God. Think about the lost, the, those who are, we say lost. Think about those in the old, old covenant days who didn't trust the Lord, who didn't follow Yahweh. They didn't trust God and, and they lived for themselves and they took God's grace, the common grace that every person receives. They receive common grace, even though they're not a god fear. They don't love Yahweh, the Canaanites. They experience grace every day. Good blessings from God, common grace. Right? They ate good food. They had good marriages. They had good families. They had children that loved them. Many of them had good health, common grace. But they, they took that grace for granted, and they didn't because of God's grace. They didn't take that and, and live obedient lives in, in expression of thanksgiving to the Lord. No, they took it for granted. It's what I deserve. I deserve to be happy and healthy and for life to go well. We'll return to this in a moment, but there's, there is a misunderstanding about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament being about the law and works, and the New Testament being about grace. A lot of people say that, oh, yeah, Old Testament's law and, and, and works. We've got to obey, we've got to obey, we've got to obey. The New Testament is all about grace, but the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it's all about grace, right? Without grace, there would be no chosen nation. There would be no law. Again, we'll revisit that. Uh, later in the, today and then the next week. But what's God doing? He is wanting this nation to, to be prepared to, to obey the law, to receive the law because they are his treasure possession. There is his kingdom of priests. There is holy nation. Second thing we... we see from the text that sinners need a mediator in order to approach God, verse 7 through 9. Need a mediator. A mediator. What's a mediator? It's one who mediates or stands in the middle. All right, a mediator is one who links two opposing sides. And, and this mediator sympathizes with both and is trusted by both. And he's the middleman, if you, if you will. And he represents each side to the other with a goal of mending broken relationships. We have a, sometimes counseling. That's what I do. We, I mediate between two warring parties, right? But Moses was God's prophet, and Aaron was God's priest, and they served as mediators for God to the people of Israel. We see Moses going up to the top of the mountain to meet with God. Eventually, he's going to take, at the end of the chapter, we see him taking Aaron up on the mountain as well. And they received God's message, and he delivered it to the people. We'll see this over and over again in the next, in the next uh, chapters. And the people were forbidden from going up on the mountain. They, they, if they would have, they would have perished. They would receive the judgment of God. They were separated from God, but Moses and Aaron could approach God, and they mediated for the people. 
So Moses Aaron, they stand between God and Israel and they deliver God's word, God's will to them. But he also, Moses intercedes for the people. As mediator, he intercedes. Exodus chapter 15, I'm going to give you a bunch of examples really quickly. Exodus 15, at Marah, verse 24 and 25, the people were grumbled against Moses. You remember this? In Exodus 15, we've already studied this. What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. But what happened here? They didn't have anything to drink, and what did Moses do? He interceded for the people, and, and, and God spoke to him, and he gave them sweet water. In Exodus 17, again, they're thirsty at, at Horeb, and Moses intercedes again, and the Lord tells them to strike the rock with his staff, and water came forth. If you think about the Amalekites, remember they attacked Israel, and Moses, what did he do? Do you remember? He holds up his hands, and, and he holds up his hands, and God gives them victory. So you see this... Moses is interceding for the people. And we see more and more examples. Exodus chapter 32, we'll see when the, the incident of the golden calf. They, they worship the golden calf. As Moses is up receiving the law, they're down there worshiping an idol. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He said, look, forget them. I'm through with them. I'm just going to start over with you, Moses. But Moses reminded the Lord what that would look like to the pagan nations. And in verse 14, he tells, And the Lord relented from disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Why? Because Moses interceded for them. Numbers chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, they opposed Moses, they grumbled against the Lord, and what happened was Miriam was made leprous. But what did Moses do? He intercedes for her and asked for her healing. Again, Numbers chapter 14, Ten of the twelve spies, they go into the promised land. They discourage the people from going into the promised land. They discourage them from trusting the Lord. And the Lord says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 12, I'll strike them with the pestilence and, dis and disinherit them. And I'll make of you a, a nation greater and mightier than they. And you see again, him saying, forget these people. I'm just going to start over with you, Moses. And in the same chapter, Moses reminds God that the nations will think less of him if he did that. And then he says, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And that's what the Lord did because Moses interceded for the people. And you, there's example after example after example. Korah and Dathan and Abiram in number 16, they opposed Moses. And, and God was so angry that he says, I'm just going to wipe out all of these people. And, and Moses, what does he do? In, in number 16, he intercedes for the people. And he says, God, don't do that. And so what did God end up doing? He spared the, the congregation, but then he opened up the ground and swallowed up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses mediated and interceded for the people. They were advocates for the people before God. You think about without a mediator, the nation of Israel wouldn't have been able to know God's will. Moses mediates this wonderful covenant, this Mosaic covenant, which God revealed His law to the people. 
But about this mediation, Moses and Aaron were limited, weren't they? Think about Aaron. He's the high priest, and uh, what's going to happen is God is going to give them instruction about building the tabernacle. And Moses is going to teach Aaron how to be the high priest and how to intercede for the people and how to serve the people in the temple. But his, he was limit, limited. You think about him entering the Holy of Holies that one day a year on the Day of Atonement and making sacrifice for the people. But what would happen to Aaron eventually? Aaron was going to die. And when he died, another one would have to replace him and it would bring an end to his work. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 tells us the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Yeah, they were limited because they, they were mere men and they died. Moses was limited as well, wasn't he? Where did Moses die? you remember? Did he die in the promised land? No. Why didn't he die in the promised land? Yeah, he, he couldn't enter the promised land because he was a sinful man. So Moses, the prophet, the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant was, was limited as well. But what are they doing? What's Moses and Aaron doing here? They're mediators of this Mosaic Covenant. They're interceding for the people. They're advocates for the people, but they are limited. But what we do see is them pointing us to the God-man, the mediator, the perfect mediator who lived in such a way that he could die as a perfect sacrifice. And what does Jesus Christ do? He mediates a new covenant, a better covenant. And we, we see that in the New, new Testament. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, is much more excellent than the old as uh, the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Under the, the new covenant that, that Jesus will mediate, the law will be written not on stone, not on tablets, not on scrolls, but be written on the hearts. And sins, they won't have to be atoned for time and time again. No, they'll be atoned for once for all by the perfect, precious blood of Jesus. They'll be atoned for completely and sufficiently. We have a mediator in the new covenant, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So what does Christ do? He's a mediator of this new covenant that we participate in. But just as Moses and Aaron interceded and were advocates, Jesus intercedes for all of us who trust in His work on the cross. Let's talk about that for a second. When we talk about intercession, we're talking about what Jesus is doing now for us. We think about Jesus and what, he, what He's done for us. Lydia, a lot of times we think about what He's done in the past. And we, and, that's, and we should do that. Chris talked about that in, in Psalm 77. The, the man's in, in, in distress and he's overcome with grief. And what does he do? The psalmist thinks back and begins to meditate on what God has done for his people. And so what do we do? We think back. When we take the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We're remembering back to what Jesus has done for us. 
his body broken, his blood shed. We remember what he's done. And the work that he did was sufficient. His death, burial, and resurrection was, was and is sufficient to save us sinners. He accomplished much, didn't he? His work on the cross and his resurrection. But what is Jesus doing for us now? Well, he's interceding for us. You think about that? Jesus, the God-man, even now, if we're God-fears and we're trusting Christ and his work on the cross for us, he's interceding for us now. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he reminds us that Jesus comes between us believers and the Father, and he makes a case to the Father on our behalf. And, and you might ask, again, isn't the work of Christ and the atonement finished? Well, of course, it's accomplished. And his intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Make sense? The, the atonement accomplished our salvation and intercession is the moment-by-moment -moment application of that atoning work. So what Jesus is doing is continually communicating to the Father what He did in the past for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. The word always means the Son never ceases to bring His life, death, resurrection to the Father in a moment-by-moment -moment way so that the Father's eyes, what are they? They're averted from our sin and placed on the righteous work of Christ. Isn't that amazing? This moment-by-moment -moment intercession has taken place where Jesus is, is, is bringing to the Father what He's done for us, His death, His burial, His resurrection. It never ceases. It never ceases. Isn't that amazing? Dane Orland encourages with these words. He says, Our sinning goes to the uttermost, but His saving goes to the uttermost. And His saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because He always lives to intercede for us. Moses interceded, but it was limited. Now in the New Covenant, we have a mediator, an intercessor, who always intercedes for us, moment by moment, without ceasing. Jesus intercedes for us, but He's also our advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It's all on the, the idea of mediation. He's mediating. He's our mediator. He intercedes for us, but He's also our advocate. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, that's good, right? But how many are going to sin here in a few minutes, right? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate what is, it, what is an advocate? And how is that different than an intercessor? We just saw in, in Hebrews chapter 7 that he always lives to make intercession for us who are trusting him. But then all, here it says, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. Well, again, intercessor stands between two parties. Jesus stands between us and the Father, right? Interceding. For us, But an advocate is one who comes alongside of someone else. 
And what does Jesus do? He comes alongside of us as we approach the Father. If you think about an advocate in, in a court situation, you think of one who comes alongside another and points out the merit, the good things the accused has done. Well, Jesus doesn't do that with us. Why? Because we ain't done much good, right? There's no, nothing. We can't do enough, right? So he's not going to point to the things we, good things we've done. No, what Jesus is doing is pointing to the good things he's done. By the advocate himself. And he's done everything that needs to be done, right, for us. Again, Christianity, our faith, is based solely on grace. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Christ has done for us. In the Old Covenant, it's not about what Israel could do. It's about what God had done for them. And another difference between intercessor and advocate can be seen by comparing those two verses. Hebrews chapter 7, 25, Jesus always intercedes for us. In 1 John 2, 1, that says when we sin, we have an advocate. See, Jesus is continually interceding for us without ceasing. Reminding the Father of His death, burial, and resurrection. But He advocates for us when we need it, when we sin. He advocates when occasion calls for it, requires it. So if you trust in Christ, you trust in His death and, and His resurrection... We, we should come to God in, in reverence and awe, but also with a confidence, knowing that His grace welcomes us into His presence through Christ, our great high priest, our mediator, who intercedes continually and advocates for us when needed. Gives us great security and comfort. You know, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament we're studying now is full of promises made by God. And the, and the New Testament is, is full of promises fulfilled by God. The promises of the Old Covenant are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator. And we'll be talking more about that as we study through the law. But Moses, he mediated between God and Israel. We think about Jesus. He mediates between God and all those who trust Him, Jew and Gentile. Christ, He's our mediator and He's the perfect bridge between God and, and sinful man because He is both truly God and truly man. He cannot fail to reconcile to the Father all those who trust in Him alone for salvation. Which appetite a little bit about that. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But God redeemed Israel. Why? So they would be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his, his holy nation. He provided a mediator in Moses and Aaron that allowed them to receive the law and receive his will and to know him more intimately, but ultimately that point us to Jesus. And lastly, the last thing we, we learn in the text is that the proper response to God's salvation is reverence and obedience, verses 10 through 15. A.W. Tozer, he writes, No one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God. The nation of Israel should fear the Lord. Why? Because He's a amazing, incredible, omnipotent, all-powerful God. 
who is holy and righteous and just. And what does he tell the people to do? He tells Moses to go down and tell consecrate themselves. You consecrate them. Get them ready because they're going to meet me. And they're going to receive the law. And they need to be ready. And so what do they do? They, they wash their clothes. I don't know what, what the importance of that is, but um, they're going to meet the Lord. They're going to hear Him. They're going to experience Him in, in some incredible ways. We're going to see at the end of the chapter, he, he, there's thunder and lightning. As a matter of fact, I'll read some of that to you. I've, I've highlighted some of these. There's thunder and lightning and thick clouds. There's a very loud trumpet blast. There, there, this mountain is wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended in it in fire. Smoke went up like a, a kiln. The whole mountain trembled. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And God answered Moses as he spoke in thunder. And so, and it says they trembled. You know, we ought to fear the Lord. We consecrate ourselves. The nation of Israel was consecrating themselves. They, they, they washed their clothes. And it said, wait three days. It's a time of reflection, a time of anticipation, a time of preparation. Kind of like we take the Lord's Supper. We kind of let you know ahead of time. Hey, we're taking the Lord's Supper. Get ready. Prepare your heart. Right? You know it's the Lord's Supper time. You try not to yell at your wife on the way to church on Sunday morning. Right? Try not to whip your kids on the way to church. What happens? Lord's Supper is always the worst. I don't know why. You just always fight on Sunday morning when it's Lord's Supper time. Can't get along. Can't get the kids in the car. Going to be late. Going to be mad when you get to church. Lord's Supper day. Here, consecrate. God tells Moses, go consecrate the people. Wash your clothes. You're going to wait three days preparing your heart. Abstain from intimacy with your spouse. You say, well, why is that? Isn't that... Being an enemy, that's a holy, wonderful thing. Well, it is, but for some reason there was this time of preparedness. Get your mind focused on, on the Lord. And then they set up boundaries, didn't they? They set up boundaries to keep people from approaching the mountain. And because the mountain, the Mount Sinai is going to be, become the tabernacle. They hadn't built the tabernacle. That's coming later. But the mountain, Mount Sinai, is becoming the tabernacle where they're going to meet God. Think about the tabernacle. There was a holy of holies where God's presence dwelt. And the, the priest could go into that once a year, right? And there's so many things he had to do to, in preparation to go into there, into God's presence. But that's what's happening here. They had to prepare to meet the Lord. It's an awesome thing to commune with God. They needed to revere the Lord. Be fearful in a healthy way of the Lord. And also, I mean, think about what's a characteristic of an unbeliever. Romans chapter 3 says, there's no fear of God among them. But those who know the Lord, they, we fear the Lord. There's a reverence for Yahweh, for God. So they're getting ready to meet with God. They must revere the Lord. But they also have to obey the Lord. In verse 8, what, what, what do the people say? Moses comes down and says, hey, get ready. We're going to meet the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And they said, hey, whatever the Lord wants us to do, we're going to do. We're going to obey the Lord. They're saying, we want to obey the Lord. We're yielded to the Lord. And we said we were going to return to this topic. But what God has done for us in the New Covenant, as we look back on history, what God has done for us in history is the basis for what He expects from us today 
Every covenant has its responsibilities. The, the Abrahamic covenant, it's a unilateral covenant, but what is Abraham? He, he's, he's, he has to trust the Lord. This Mosaic covenant that we're about to learn about, that God made with the, the nation of Israel by giving His law, there's responsibilities there, isn't it? There, I mean, there's no such thing as re having a relationship without responsibility. I got new neighbors. You know, it's always kind of a it's always kind of a scary thing when you're getting new neighbors, right, Kevin? You're going to be getting new neighbors soon, right? You're like, yeah, you don't know who that's going to be. You have no control over it. Might be good ones, might be bad ones. You just have no idea. Their dog might be really a good, sweet dog, and it might be a dog that bites your kids. You know, you don't ever know. Well, I got new neighbors too. They moved in last night, right? Hoping they're going to be good, right? You never know. You never, never know. But that relationship I'm going to have with my neighbors, there's responsibilities there, right? There's going to be responsibilities I have to my neighbors. Just like I'm a, I'm a husband, I have a relationship with my wife, so there's responsibilities I have as a husband, right, that I didn't have before. I have children. I have that relationship with my children. There's responsibilities there, right? Certain things I have to do, certain ways I have to act. God is making this covenant with the nation of Israel and they have responsibilities, right? One of the things that God wants them to do is obey His will. And obedience is not the way we get the grace of the relationship, but obedience is the expression that we've already gotten the grace from the relationship. So don't get thinking in your mind, oh, oh, oh covenant law, it's, it's about works and doing and duty and da-da-da-da. And New Testament about grace. No, it's, it's all grace. It's all grace. I mean, think about Psalm 19, Psalm 119, when it talks about the law of God. What, the, what, is the, what does the psalmist say about the law? It's, it's hard, it's duty-filled, and it's rigid. No. It's sweeter than honey on a comb. I delight in it. It's more wonderful than, than gold and silver, right? We don't think rightly about the law, do we? Well, hopefully after we study through this Mosaic Covenant, we'll understand the law more clearly and we'll learn to love God's law as we should. So what do we do with this text? Exodus 19, it's a lot there, a lot we didn't cover. I think number one, for us as New Covenant believers, we have to think about um, in the Old Covenant, God used Moses and Aaron mediate this covenant. They couldn't approach the Lord, could they? They couldn't go up the mountain. Bryce, they couldn't go up the mountain. If they did, they would die. They couldn't approach the Lord on their own. They need a mediator. And how we as sinners, we need a mediator, don't we? As sinful people. And our, that mediator, the only mediator we have that's sufficient is Jesus Christ. And so the question for us today is, is, is Jesus your mediator? And is He constantly, without ceasing, interceding for you on your behalf to the Father. And you, know, you think about that. If the Savior, if Jesus Christ is not minute by minute, moment by moment, interceding for you continually before the Father, you can't stand before the Lord. We have to have a mediator. Jesus Christ is that perfect, sufficient mediator. Is He your mediator? 
Is he right now interceding for you? And is he an advocate who, when you do sin, when you do rebel, when you do blow it, does he come along beside you? And, 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 and an, is he an advocate for you to the Father? Without that, you can't stand before the Lord. And maybe you're here and you say, hey, I've never, I've, I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm a sinner and I'm rebellion, rebellious against the Lord. I've lived my life like this. And I do what I want to do. My life is characterized by selfishness and self-absorption and pride and arrogance. And I live my life like this. If you looked at my, if I list out all the things I do in my life, all of those things are typically for me. I do very little for the Lord. I do nothing for the Lord. I do it for me. And you're living your life like this. Well, you know what? You need to repent. Because if you've yet to repent and trust Christ, then you have no mediator. You're on your own. And when you're on your own with a holy God, that's trouble for you. The Bible tells us that all who believe in the Son will have eternal life. But if you don't believe in the Son, John 3, 17, you're condemned already. If you don't have a mediator, if you don't have an intercessor, an advocate in Christ, you're condemned already. And you need to repent. And I'd love to talk to you about that. If you say, well, I'm not really sure how to do that. You just cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm in rebellion against you. I have been my entire life. I don't have an advocate. I don't have an intercessor. I don't have a mediator. I'm separated from the Lord. And, and when I die, I breathe my last. Whether that's today, tomorrow, or 45 years from now, I'm going to be separated from the Lord for all eternity. Won't you repent today? The Bible says, if we confess our sin, and confession means you, you agree with God that you're sinful. If I confess my, my, my sin, God is faithful and just, and He'll forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, all his, all his sermons could be summed up in repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. Work on the cross as your own. He'll become your intercessor, your advocate, your mediator, which you desperately need. Do you have a mediator? Israel needed a mediator, and we do as well. Secondly, God's purpose for Israel was to be for them to be his treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And we talked briefly about what those, I mean, our small group leaders will expound upon that uh, next week. But Peter, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, he applies this old covenant promise uh, to Israel, to the church. The church made up of Jew and Gentile. And he says, but you, speaking of New covenant believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sounds familiar, huh? A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are his treasured possession. You know, we're bought with a price. If you're in Christ, you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Yeah, we're his. You belong to him. You're a special prized possession. We as believers, we're all priests in the new covenant. You know that? Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says, And he, speaking of Jesus Christ, has made us uh, a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We're all priests. 
now we can go to the Lord ourselves directly and we can intercede for others. We're a holy nation. You know that? We're to be set apart. We're to be salt and light. Can you say that? Can you say that you're you're not your own? You're His treasure possession. You are a priest and you're a holy, part of the holy nation set apart. I'm salt and light. Well, we've covered much. We left a lot undone. But we'll pick up with chapter 20 next week. What we are going to do today, I'm going to pray and we'll just be dismissed here. Um, I'm sure you have some questions about this chapter. There's a lot there left undone. But what we're going to do today, I mentioned a Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. When you leave today, if you can, go out the back and get a book. We've got a bunch of the copies of this book, the Dane Ortland book, Gentle and Lowly, and it's a wonderful book. It's one of the better books I've read in a long time. But we're going to give you a copy of that today. We've got a bunch that we were we were given, and so we want to distribute those. And um, a couple of things that I mentioned today are from that book that are really, really helpful in regard to Jesus being our intercessor and advocate. But we're going to give you those. Uh, the greeters will be back there to help you when you leave to get those. If you are, if you're a family, take one. And, um, and read it. But um, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. We, we do have tonight um, a fish fry. And the reason we're doing this is, you know, what we've done in the past, we did mission trips, and we're like, we like, do fundraisers, so we invite, like, everybody in the world that we know to come and buy fish so we can earn, you know, raise some money to send people to Idaho or wherever. But we're not doing that tonight. This is for our church. And if you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to come as well. Come and eat fish. This is, you got to eat. You're all going to eat tonight. All of you are going to eat. So we might as well eat with us, right? Let's eat together. The, the goal is for us to spend time together. Our small groups aren't meeting. Our Sunday night small groups aren't meeting in their homes. They're, we're meeting together just so we can spend time together, get to know one another better. We're going to eat at 530, so we've got several hours just to be together, just sit around the table, talk, love on each other, get to know each other better. That's the whole goal and purpose of what we're doing tonight. And it's Fried catfish. Who doesn't like that? Yeah, if you, if you don't like it, don't tell anybody because people think you're weird, right? Um, and you don't have to eat it. Just don't tell anybody you don't like it, right? Because people think you're strange. But we are going to eat fish tonight. It's provided by the church. And if you, if you want to bring side, bring a side or a dessert. Don't bring both, but bring a side or a dessert if you like, and we'll eat together tonight. It's going to be good. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of good food. Wednesday night, we have beaver kids. We have something for everybody. Children, students, adults come. We eat together. 6 o'clock, the children eat. They eat free. 6.20, it's $5 a plate. We have great food. We sit around the table and eat. And then 7 o'clock, we have Bible study, something for everybody. We have an open Bible study. And then we have evangelism training if you're involved in that. If you're involved in that, Phil says second, second part. You need to know the second part. First part and second part uh, verbatim by heart. Um, be working on that. Okay. Anything else we forgot? Anything? Okay. Well, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Make sure you get you, get your kids first. Get your kids, then get a book on the way out. The greeters will be back there handing out books for you. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us, and we're not good to you. Lord, so many times we're selfish and self-absorbed, and Lord, we don't. Uh, we do take your your grace for granted. But, Father, we are thankful 
that we're here. You've given us a desire to be here. And I know there's so many people that are sick and quarantined and out and, and, and would like to be here. Some are working today. But, Lord, we're thankful that we're able to be here. And I know many are, are watching via Facebook Live. We're thankful that we're able to be together in some way and study your word. And we're thankful for your word in, in Exodus 19. And as these, these Israelites, this nation, is getting ready to receive the law, Father, may you continue to instruct us in your word. Equip us. Father, we are thankful for Jesus who is right now interceding for us who trust in him. And he is our advocate. When we do blow it and we, we get in the flesh, he's an advocate who comes along beside us and goes to the Father on our behalf. Lord, because of that, we have hope. Because of that, we have joy. Because of that, we have life. But Father, I recognize with a, with a crowd this large, there's some here, children, maybe students, maybe adults, who've yet to bow the knee to Christ. They've yet to surrender to Jesus. They've yet to repent and believe. And Father, I pray that even now that their hearts would be pricked. Lord, that they would desire to know you more than anything in the world. That they would see you as, as glorious and wonderful. And they would see their sin the way they should see it as de deplorable and terrible. And Father, that you would grant them repentance and faith even today. Father, wouldn't it be awesome if we had kids and students and adults saved today? Father, do your work through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, you want us to understand that we are your treasured possession. Father, those who are in Christ, we're a part of a, a kingdom of priests. Father, we are a holy people. Father, may you help us all that are part of Beaver Baptist Church. Lord, may you help us to live that out this week. Father, we want to. We need your grace to do it. Father, for those that are sick and, and ailing, and we just ask for grace for them. Father, for tonight as we get together, just pray that you'd bless our time together, that it would be sweet, that we'd love each other more faithfully. Father, that you would bring um, who you need, who needs to be here tonight. Just pray that you'd bring them tonight. They'd get loved on. Be gracious to us, Lord. Help us to love you. Help us to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.